Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. We're going to be covering verses 1 to 11 this morning. I titled this morning's message, The Triumphal Entry of the King. And before we get into the text, I wanted to first speak to you a little bit about the importance of biblical prophecy. It's actually something that is very important for us to understand how biblical prophecy plays a great role in our faith as Christians. You see, we make a lot of emphasis as Christians upon a faith in Jesus Christ or having faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's apart from works. It's it's by faith alone. And we make this great emphasis upon it. But did you know that our Christian faith, that it's, it's not just a blind faith? We're not called to follow after a blind faith with, with no evidence for it. As a matter of fact, Jesus gave us quite a bit of evidence. He gave us lots of reasons Why we can say, you know what, I know that I know that I know that this is going to come to pass. And you know why? Because it's based upon biblical prophecy. And I make that emphasis upon biblical prophecy. There's a lot of prophecy that may go on out in the Christian circles that's not necessarily biblical. And so we want to stick to the word of God. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we read, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It says that it's the evidence of things not seen. Now it's been said that true biblical faith is believing what has already been shown in the past, which causes us to have faith in his future promises, though we have not seen them yet. I think that that's a great quote about prophecy. There's many things that we have not laid hold of with our physical eyes, yet we believe. We also, as believers, have other parts that make our faith very strong, and there's a lot of evidence for it. We have historical evidence as Christians, and that's powerful. History tells us. History has laid out all of these things about Jesus Christ and and all these things. You could study non-biblical literature and learn lots about Christianity and Jesus and the disciples and all those things. But we also have the archaeological evidence, which for our faith, it's incredible. As a matter of fact, I traveled one time, I've been to Israel, and our tour guide there had said this to me. He says, you know, with everything that has been unearthed here in Israel, and there's much, you can just spend days and days of looking at all sorts of things that have been unearthed archaeologically, but he says, with all of that, there's only 25% of it that's been unearthed. There's so much more. The Lord has given us this archaeological evidence, these things we read about in the Bible. I hope to take our church someday, Lord willing, if the Lord doesn't come back before that time, to go to Israel. It's amazing. It's incredible. But we also have 
prophetical evidence. And the prophetical evidence that we find in Scripture is, with one word, overwhelming. Overwhelming evidence. In Revelation 19.10, when John, the apostle, had that vision, and it says that he fell down at the angel's feet to worship him, but the angel said to John, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brother who has the testimony of Jesus. And then he says to John, Worship God. For the testimony, he says, of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You see, there's 66 books in the Bible. And every book of the Bible, it has some picture or something that prophesies of Jesus Christ. There's, all, there's countless type, typology throughout Scripture. They all point to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of the Bible. And for the the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Mark Hitchcock, maybe you've heard the name. He has written a number of books on prophecy. He gives 11 reasons why biblical prophecy is important to us. He says, number one, that prophecy is a major part of divine revelation. Number two, God promises a special blessing to those who study and pay attention to prophecy. Number three, Jesus Christ is the subject of prophecy. Number four, prophecy gives us a proper perspective in life. Number five, prophecy helps us understand the whole Bible. Number six, prophecy can and should be used as a tool for evangelism Number seven, prophecy can help insulate people from heresy. Number eight, prophecy helps us understand our world today. Number nine, prophecy reveals the sovereignty of God over time and history. And then number ten, prophecy proves the truth of God's word. And lastly, prophecy challenges us to a holy life and to be ready. The importance of prophecy in our lives as believers is huge. This morning, we're going to see some of that in our text this morning. One of the prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah as the king of Israel was prophesied by the prophet Zechariah, but this prophecy came over 500 years before Christ. This is what's amazing. This is what's incredible. 500 years before Christ was even born, he made this prophecy. God gave him this prophetic word concerning the Messiah that would come. Now keep in mind that there are over 300, actually about 355 prophecies that are found in Scripture concerning just Jesus Christ. Just in the life of Jesus Christ, over 300 prophecies have been given. The prophecy in our text this morning is Zechariah 9.9. It reads this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, 
behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That prophecy that was given to Zechariah was fulfilled in our text this morning, Matthew 21, verses 6 to 9. The prophet Zechariah, he prophesied that there was going to be this righteous, divinely preserved king of Israel who was going to come into Jerusalem, but he was going to come in peace. He was going to come in meekness. And the Jews, those that knew their scriptures, they saw Zechariah's prophecy as being a messianic prophecy. That's how they viewed what we just read. The prophet Isaiah, who also prophesied 700 years before Christ, he wrote this concerning the coming king. Isaiah 62, 11, Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. That's just two prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. 355 of them. It's been calculated... And many of you have heard this before, but I'm hoping that maybe somebody hasn't heard that, this, what I'm going to read to you this morning, because it really shows you how powerful prophecy is. There's a man that has calculated how many prophecies we find in the Bible. He's come up with 2,500 prophecies that could be found. His name is Dr. Hugh Ross, and this is what he wrote. He says, unique among all books ever written, the Bible, it accurately foretells specific events and details many years, sometimes even centuries before they occur. Approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible, about 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled to the letter without error. The remaining 500 or so, they reach into the future and may be seen unfolding as the days go by. We're living in that. We're seeing these things unfolding even in our day. Just watch your news. Watch Israel. Watch what's going on in your world. And then read your Bible and you will see that prophecy is being fulfilled. But these remaining 500 prophecies, as he goes on to say, since the probability... For one of these prophecies has been fulfilled by chance, averages less than 1 in 10. That's just one prophecy, 1 in 10 chance. Uh, he says, and that's figured conservatively. And since the prophecies are for the most part independent of one another, in other words, they were given it to different prophets at different times, he goes on to say that the odds for all of these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance without error is less than 1 to 2,000. That would be a 1 with 2,000 zeros after it. Or that would be, yeah, uh, well, 1 with 2,000 I can't even say. Following that, can you write it out? That's the probability of these amount of prophecies being fulfilled precisely, accurately, to the detail. 
That's why prophecy is so important to us as believers. I want you to note that our text this morning is found in actually all four Gospels. Jesus Christ coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey is recorded by all four Gospel writers. It's what's called the Passion Week, or we call it Passion Sunday. The Latin word for passion means to suffer. Remember that from chapter 21 all the way to chapter 27, it's going to cover this last week of Jesus' life here on earth. But Jesus was going to show that by many infallible proofs that he was who he claimed to be. We read in Acts 1-3, we read, to whom also he showed himself alive after he rose from the dead after his passion by many infallible proofs. You see, Jesus wants us to know there was a risen Savior. He did come out of that tomb. You see, Jesus didn't walk this earth for 40 days after the resurrection for his benefit. He walked those 40 days for your benefit, for my benefit, so that we would know and this world would know that Jesus Christ came out of that tomb that he's alive, that he ascended up physically and the disciples saw him ascend up from the Mount of Olives until the clouds received him out of their sight. He wanted it to be beyond a shadow of a doubt. He had risen from the dead. Today we're going to look at that Sunday, the first day of the week. We finished, though, last week with Jesus and the disciples leaving Jericho. Uh, They would travel on this Roman road. It was a military road that led from Jericho there all the way down into the city of Jerusalem. This road, actually, you can actually go there today. I, I found pictures of it. They actually have these huge stones that are still in the ground. It's still parts of it there today. Incredible. The, the, the road that they would have walked on It's about a 17-mile journey there from Jericho uh, to the city of Jerusalem. We read, though, that after Jesus had departed from Jericho, that there were two blind men that were there on the side of the road. And as Jesus was passing by, they began to cry out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Uh, real interesting uh, the words that they used and even calling Jesus the son of David was a messianic title that they were giving to him they were acknowledging him as Messiah as they heard him walking by they began to cry that out to him and then we're told that the multitudes began to warn the blind men they warned him that they should be quiet but we're told that they cried out even more They even got louder. They even cried it out even more. And they said, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And then we're told that Jesus stood still. And he called them and he he said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Last week, I asked for those to stand here at church. And many of you stood. Because you're saying, Lord, I need something from you. Would you touch me? Would you touch my body? Would you meet this need? 
Jesus knew what the blind men needed. They wanted a touch. But here he's saying to them, what do you want me to do for you? You see, you have not because you ask not. And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And so Jesus had compassion and he touched their eyes. And then we're told immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. I shared with you last week that this miracle, I believe, is divinely placed in Scripture, and I think it has of great importance because, you see, these blinded eyes were being unveiled. I believe there's a spiritual significance to it, even in the placement of our storyline. I shared also last week about another miracle This miracle was the raising of the dead, or raising Lazarus from the dead. I also believe that it's significant in our storyline this morning. Because, you see, I believe that the raising of Lazarus from the dead had spiritual significance for what was going to take place just days later as Jesus Christ was going to be raised from the dead. We know that... Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us that miracle. It doesn't record the miracle. You have to go to the 11th chapter of John's gospel to see that this also fits into the storyline that we're reading here in Matthew. And we're told that in chapter 11 that Jesus had come into this city of Bethany. And when he was there, he, that was the time that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And then we're told, or we can read from that, that he had left Bethany. Now, it's possible that this is happening about a month before Jesus rides into Jerusalem as Messiah on the back of that donkey. This is a month out. And then we read in chapter 12 of John's gospel that Jesus came back to Bethany. He had already raised Lazarus from the dead. He now comes back to Bethany, and when he gets there, we're told in chapter 12, verse 1, that it was only six days before the Passover. Now, if the Passover was on Friday, then we know that Jesus is probably arriving back here in Bethany, probably on late Friday afternoon. He probably spent the night there, him and his disciples, on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, the next day. And then it was going to be that following day that he's going to ride down into Jerusalem. Upon hearing that Jesus was in Bethany, we're told also in John chapter 12 that many of the Jews that were there in Jerusalem, they had come to Jerusalem for the feast... And they had heard that Jesus was back in Bethany. Now, Bethany was only two miles outside of the city. He's back in Bethany, and so this multitude of people, we're told, begins to make their way to Bethany because they not only want to see Jesus, but we're told that they wanted to see Lazarus. They wanted to see the one that they heard had been risen from the dead. And as we move forward... In this narrative of Matthew's gospel, I think it's important for us to read John's account of this because I think it falls in line with what's going to happen in this Passion Week, this leading up to the cross. It's real important, I think, part of the storyline. 
Let's read, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. I want to read this to you. John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We read, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, was who, had been, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, and there they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And that incredible. How would you like to have been there? I mean, I just, it just, my mind just goes right to this picture. Here's Lazarus sitting at this table alive now. Incredible. A month later, and all these people coming out to see. Do you know someday you're going to sit at a table with the Lord in heaven, in eternity? Just think what that day is going to be like. Lazarus is going to be sitting there with us. Incredible. Then we read that in verse 3 that Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. This is happening, remember, just six days before Jesus is going to go to the cross. Before he's, going to be, before he's going to be crucified, here's Jesus being anointed. In, I think, Mark's gospel, it says that that oil was poured over his head, not just on his feet. This was, this was like preparation for what was about to come, but I don't even think as that oil was being poured that it was for that purpose. They were just honoring the Lord. But we're told here that then one of the disciples, when... It was Judas that saw that this oil was being poured out on Jesus and realized how costly it was. We're told that it was 300 denarii. 300 denarii, uh, Judas says, that could have been given to the poor. Why are we wasting it by pouring it on the feet of Jesus? You see, 300 denarii would have been 300 days worth of wages. One denarii was for a day's wages, 300 days worth. And and here she's just pouring it out on the Lord. And he said, not that he, uh, Matthew writes this, he says, not that this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Don't ever think that the things that transpire in your life from day to day, the details of your life, don't ever think that those things are not divinely there and placed there in your life. God directs your steps every single day. Do you think that Jesus knew on this particular date that this oil, this spikenard oil that was saved by her was going to be poured on his feet for this day? Yes, he did. Does he know the details of your life from day to day? He does. He says, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They estimate that, and these estimations go all over the place, but... They estimate that the population of 
Jerusalem grew by 150 to 500,000, big spread in numbers, but it grew by that much during the feast. The people would come from all over and come to Jerusalem. And here is this large group of people that are gathered there for the feast. This is the day, this is the time that the Messiah was going to unveil himself to his people Israel. We're told that the next day that a great multitude had come to the feast. And when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Here's that prophecy. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 9.9. His disciples did not understand these things, we're told in John's gospel at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written about him, that they had done these things to him. Therefore, we're told the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, we're told that they bore witness. So here's all this people bearing witness to the fact that's Lazarus. He came out of that tomb. He's alive. I mean, this was an incredible miracle. It was perfectly timed for this particular time that the Messiah was going to be crucified. And then we read, for this reason in verse 18, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. They heard that he had done these signs. Those signs were given for a purpose. John tells us in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, that these signs were given so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the purpose of all of these things. We're told in verse 19 in John's gospel that the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Underline that. The world has gone after him. Why? Because look what the Lord has done. Look how incredible he is. Look at his followers. Look at the multitudes that are coming out to him. Look, they're all following after him. They were threatened. This wasn't a good day for the religious leaders there. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were threatened by what they see taking place in Jesus. That's important for the storyline as we're moving forward through the, the remainder of Matthew's gospel. Look at your Bibles now back at Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1. Now, when Jesus and the disciples drew near Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Jerusalem, as I already uh, shared, uh, is 
uh, also known as, it's also known as the city of David. It's known as the holy city. It's known as Mount Zion in, in Zechariah's prophecy. It's known as Mount Moriah. But it's also known as the daughter of Zion. And actually, you know, I, I, I found this out, but there's actually, and if you, if you go on and look at it, you can actually find 70 different names throughout Jewish history where they've attributed to this holy city, Jerusalem. 70 different names. This was the most holy spot and still is for all of Israel. Jerusalem. We also have Bethany which was a small village on the east side of the Mount of Olives, and Bethpedge, Bethpedge, that was also just close to Bethany there, also on the east side of the Mount of Olives. We have here Jesus now coming to this place or leaving this place of Jericho and traveling this 17 miles, this last 17 miles, towards Jerusalem, just as he told his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going there for the feast, but he knew that he was going there for even much more than the feast. He was set, his course was set towards Jerusalem. His course was set towards the cross. On their way to Jerusalem is where we read that story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That's when it took place during this time. So there's a period of time and then he ends up back at Bethany where we are picking up our storyline today. Now Mark's gospel uh, gives us a little bit more insight to this. It says, so the disciples, they went their way and they found the colt tied by the door outside on the street. So get this picture in your mind. There's this home, and there's this mother and this little colt next to it, tied up outside of the door. He says, when you come into Bethpage there, you're going to see this donkey and this colt that are tied up immediately when you walk into the city. But it says, but some of those who stood there will say to you, what are you doing? And it and they begin to loose the colt, and then they spoke to them just as Jesus has commanded, so they let them go. In other words, Jesus already gave them the heads up. He said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to walk into the city. The colt's going to be tied up. You're going to walk up. Somebody's going to say to you, "Why are you? what are you doing with the colt? My Lord has need of it. Then go ahead and take him. Okay. You just spelled it out before it happened. Some people have tried to say, well, you know, maybe Jesus prearranged this thing. Maybe he went into the city some days earlier and he prearranged for this cult. Would I be able to use your cult? And I don't know about that. I think our Lord is in control of these things. And the way I read it, I just look at it, you know what? God knew exactly how it was all going to play out. And he just spelled it out to them ahead of time. Luke's gospel gives us something more. In in chapter 19, verse 30, it says, As you enter into this village, you're going to find this colt tied, which no one has ever, ever sat upon. No one's ever sat on this colt. I started thinking, you know, I, have, I know nothing about horses. I don't know if we have any horse lovers here or donkey lovers. I don't know if we have that here. But I started looking on the whole issue about 
breaking a horse. I found out that breaking a, a horse and breaking a donkey are two different things. This is a donkey that had never been sat on before. That's the way the Lord wants to do things. I'm going to take a donkey that has never been ridden before, and that's the one that I'm going to ride upon. I started looking at the seven steps to breaking a donkey. It's quite the ordeal to, to break that. I mean, see, the Lord doesn't need that. I don't even know. I don't even know if I have time to read yet what's involved here. But it, it tells us in step one to familiarize the donkey uh, with its environment, uh, and then establish trust with the donkey to get him to cooperate with you. And then uh, use your voice as a, as a first tool of training. You know, you, you have to begin to give these small commands and begin to back them up with other commands. You see, donkeys are slow learners and they can get confused and startled by anything new. Uh, repetition is key. This donkey, this is a donkey trainer. Uh, combine the voice commandments, commands with treats like carrots and apples, you know, to get the initial training phase started. And then lead the donkey by pulling the rope gently with voice commands. If she does not move, pull her by the side in a circle so she can step to maintain her balance. Train the donkey to lift his legs and hook. All of that. This is how you train a donkey. But our Lord didn't need that. He didn't have to go through. He didn't say when you get there, we're going to go through this training process. You're going to go and you're going to find a cold on which no one has ever sat. But then look at your Bibles at verse 4. All of this was done. Underline that. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying. You see why I started out the importance of prophecy? All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, this was divine. This was God's plan before the very foundations of the world. Already worked out in the council of heaven that it was going to be worked out this way. He did not make this up as he went along. It was already predetermined. Very important. It was divine. It was marked out. It was spoken by the prophets. And then it was fulfilled in the New Testament. Exactly the way the prophets said. But let me ask you, why does God give prophetical evidence? For us as believers? He does it for this reason. Not for himself. He does it for you. He does it for me. He wants our faith to be grounded in the fact that, you know what? What I said I'm going to do, what I told you and how I told you and how it was going to come to pass, and when you look back and you see that it came to pass, just like he said, those other 500 prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, does that really give you some assurance? You go, that's all going to happen too, exactly like he said it would. We read in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, similar words. Matthew 121, it says, And Mary will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then it says this, 
So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 35, verse 4. The prophecy, and then being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. Looking ahead, and we will get to this verse, in chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 55, this is the night that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're told that in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes that had come out to arrest him, Have you come out as against a robber, with swords and with clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. And then listen what it says. But all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Zechariah 13.7. Fulfillment of prophecy. Down to the very details. Then Matthew, back in our text, he quotes Zechariah 9.9. Concerning Jesus coming into Jerusalem as king. The prophet Zechariah, remember, prophesied this 500 years earlier. Verse 5, tell the daughter of Zion. Uh, Zion was that, that name, as I already said, that was given uh, for the holy city Jerusalem. A name given. There was actually a, it was actually a, a higher elevation on the temple mount. They called it Mount Zion. It was back even in the city of David during that time. Zion, it was called, Mount Zion. And then it took on other names that were given to it, the holy city and the city of David. But Zechariah 9 predicted that this righteous king of Israel was going to come into Jerusalem. But he's going to come into Jerusalem in a way that even his own people weren't expecting. You see, he came in on the back of a colt. He came in a, in, in a, in a way that they, they wanted to see him come in on a white stallion. They wanted to see him come racing in, and then he was going to just establish his kingdom. But he didn't come that way. We know that this term, though, daughter of Zion, that was attributed not only to the city of, uh, of Jerusalem there, but it also has reference to God's people themselves. You see, the word daughter in Scripture, is it, it really speaks of how the love that God has for his people, Israel. The care that he has. I know I've got three daughters. And, and, I, and they're, even though they're all grown up, they're still daddy's girls. I love my daughters. The Lord has this love for Israel. He has this passion for Israel. The daughter of Zion. It implies really that he just has this great love for them. We read in Zechariah also, in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, speaking of his people. And I will be the glory in her midst. Zechariah 2.8 For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
He sent me after glory to the nations who, which plunder you. Speaking about the nations that plundered Israel. For he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. The nations that come against Israel, they touch the apple of my eye. I love Israel. They're my people, my chosen people. Zechariah 2.10 Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Zephaniah 3.14 Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. That's God's hearts towards Israel, his heart towards them, his love for them. The prophet Zechariah in his prophecy tells Israel, he says, tell the daughter of Zion, he says, tell them this. Behold, look at your Bibles, verse 5. Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not what they expected. They they wanted to see the white horse. The white horse or the stallion or the, you know, that was the war horse. That's how they rode into battle. You see, Rome was the repressor. We want to see our Messiah come. That's how we see it. And he comes riding in on the back of this colt. It wasn't even the mother. It was the the colt. This young little uh, colt. That's what he comes riding in on. And as he's riding in, we read in verse 6, so the disciples, they went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they they brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on, on them. Matthew says he laid it on both of them. So apparently this donkey and this colt had all of these maybe colorful clothes that were laid on them. And then we're told that a great multitude that they began to spread their clothes even on the road, making this this pathway for the Messiah to come. Others cut down branches from trees and they spread them on the road also. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. You see, here's this picture of this Messiah sitting on this colt, both of the animals covered with these colorful cloths, and then all of this processional of people laying down these branches and clothes in front of him. 
There's this multitude of people that are before the Lord, and then there's a whole multitude of people that are behind him, and he's in the middle, and they're making this procession down. I've walked down that hill singing that song as they walk down into the city up to the Temple Mount. Pretty incredible. They're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. You know, the son of David, again, is a messianic title. The Jews are acknowledging him as Messiah. They had heard, you remember, people came from Galilee and all the regions about, they came for this feast. They've heard the miracles. Three years have passed worth of miracles and Jesus' teaching and all that. He has gathered a, a huge following. And here they are now, gathered in Israel, gathered in the holy city for the feast that is about to take place. A time of celebration. And their king has arrived, the Messiah, and they begin to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Nathan the prophet, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, he came to King David... And he prophesied to King David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your father, in other words, when you pass away, King David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And then he says this, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever forever an important word you see many people want to say well we're here we're talking about solomon and we are david's son but we also have a prophetical word that is being given here concerning the son of david the messiah as they began to cry out the son of david you see they knew that someday david's throne is going to be established once again There's going to come a millennial kingdom that is still yet future. There's going to be a time when Jesus Christ is going to sit on the throne of David for that thousand-year millennial reign. That's going to follow after the the seven-year tribulation period. It's yet future. He's going to take the throne of David. And how do we know that this prophetic word was referring to the Messiah also, not just to Solomon. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and preaching that message on that day to Israel. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and he is buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. You see, he's preaching this. He's quoting from this what he knew. And it goes on to say, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is all marked out. King David and all of that, and and Jesus sitting on the throne of David, marked out. They were all shouting, 
as this procession was coming down. You see, the picture that you have is Jesus coming down from the Mount of Olives and it comes down into this ravine uh, and then comes back up the other side and comes in through the east gate on the side of that way. You can see those pictures of that east gate today. It's all closed up. The, the, the Arabs, uh, uh, the Muslims, they, they took and closed it off. And the reason why... You know why they closed it off? Because scriptures tell us that that same gate is what the Messiah is going to come through. Someday, still yet future, he's going to ride through that gate. You know what they did? They sealed it up with blocks. The line of it is still on the wall. And they put all of their, uh, their graves out in front of that east gate because no Jew would ever walk across the graves of, a, of these Muslims, these Arabs. They're not going to do that. And so in a sense, they're trying to prevent what these Christians or these Jews say is going to happen, that he's going to ride through the east gate prophetically someday, and he will. God has no problem with going through that east gate, whether those graves are there or not. And he has no problem with taking the stones down that are sealed up in it right now. Blessed, they're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And probably as they were shouting that, probably at the top of their lungs with all of this joy, they were excited. This was a time of celebration. This is what we have been waiting for. This was the day. This is what was stirring in their hearts as they laid all those things and were crying out. Just get that picture in your head. They may have been thinking of another messianic prophecy from Psalm 118. This is how it reads in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. That's Hosanna. That's what Hosanna means. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. 118, excuse me. This was a very familiar psalm to the Jews. They often recited this at their feast. It was common. They did this all the time. But here they are reciting it as their Messiah was making his way down into the holy city. The problem with all of this is is that when he got there, And we're going to see next week that the very next day now, this is Monday, Jesus is going to go back into the city and he's going to start turning over the tables of the money changers. He's going to cleanse the temple. Uh, He's going to go back in and all of a sudden he's going to cause this great stir. And it's going to rile up the religious leaders. They hate him for it. They're plotting They're looking for how they're going to put him to death, take him out of the way. And these people that were crying out, Hosanna, save us, they're they're going to be a little bit disheartened. 
They're going to think, you know, our, our, we thought this was it. We thought he was going to set up this whole new kingdom here. A literal kingdom right there. That's what they thought. And he hasn't done it. And can you imagine what was going through the disciples' mind and all of the multitudes of people that hailed him as Messiah when they saw him hanging there on the cross? Our Messiah is dead. All of this is significant. Jesus raising Zacharias from the dead. I have power over the dead. I can raise this man out of the tomb. He's been in the grave for four days. Lazarus, come forth with the very word of his mouth. That should give us great hope as believers. We see the whole picture. They didn't. But here they are. Now we're going to see as this week goes on, this Passion Week, Monday comes, more teaching, more plotting. All of this is going to lead to that what we call Good Friday, where they're going to take and they're going to crucify the Lord on the cross for us. That's why we're sitting here today. We're going, he did that. He did that for me so that I could live. He did that so that I could have forgiveness of sins. It's what should stir our hearts up to want to go and tell people about Jesus. He can do that for you too. He He changed me. He can change you. We have an incredible Lord. I, I don't have time to do this. I have it in my notes to do it, but I don't have time. But what's incredible about this is that we read in verse 10, it says, and when he had come into Jerusalem, we're told that all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. As Jesus rode into that city, do you know what's incredible? The most incredible prophecy when you read it. You know which one I'm going about? You know which one I'm talking about? Daniel chapter 9. Do you know the prophecy concerning our Lord that actually what we're reading here in Matthew's gospel was going to be partially fulfilled in Daniel chapter 9? We read, and I, we're not going to get into very far, but it says that 70 weeks are determined for, my, for your people and for your holy city. And it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, that's what we're talking about this morning, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks The street shall be built again in the wall and even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, the Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to go to that cross, but not for himself, Daniel prophesies. And the people, speaking about the Romans and the prince of who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary that happened in 70 A.D., And the end will be with a flood, and the end of the war, desolations are determined. And then Daniel's prophecy finishes in verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. 
This is the 70th week of Daniel, something still future. We have not yet seen this come to pass. It's referring to the seven-year tribulation period that is going to come upon this earth. But we've seen all the way to, to verse 26, the fulfillment already. And now we still have the 70th week of Daniel yet to be fulfilled. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and the offering, speaking of the Antichrist, during the tribulation period. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. This is a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And here's the praise report. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you won't be here during that time. We're going to be in the presence of our Lord. The Lord's going to take us to be with Him. And so let's leave this place today rejoicing in what we have in Jesus Christ. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.